The relational attributes that we shall consider today certainly relate to Psalm 116 and our brother Collins reading an explanation of that psalm to us. Because it is God's forgiveness and His observance and His vulnerability and generosity that makes Psalm 116 the special psalm that it is, in how he heard David and answered his supplications and delivered him from tears and from falling and all the other blessings that are there in that psalm. Let's open our Bibles to Exodus chapter 34, where we shall take up the relational attribute of forgiving. Our God is forgiving. We're not dealing with the doctrine of salvation at this time. We're dealing with his attributes. We're not dealing with His mercy, which is one of His participatory or communicable attributes, we're dealing with the practical forgiveness that He shows us on a daily basis so that practically we can continue to walk with Him, we can continue to have fellowship with Him, and have peace and affection between Him and us. We are not dealing with our positional standing before God or our legal standing in heaven because of Jesus shedding his blood for us, but a a residual effect of that sacrifice for us of the practical cleansing from sin that we have on a daily basis. He is forgiving. Those of you that have known people that don't forgive easily understand that when you offend them, then it breaks the relationship, and though you may confess your error in doing something to hurt them, there's, there's at least a cold war that continues on while they struggle with their inability to forgive, and while they exact their hatred from you by not forgiving, and so it is interrupted. And it, even in its best state, it leaves a cold war which doesn't occur with the Lord. You know, when there's a cold war with the Lord and He's withdrawn, it's because He hasn't forgiven yet. It's because He's waiting on us to confess our sins, and then He will draw nigh to us again. But that interruption and its resolution is very difficult with men, and it's very difficult with some men more than others. But with God, it's easy. And it's thorough, and it's complete, and it's wonderful, and it's glorious. And when when we speak of prayer, when we speak of confessing our sins... We want to have such a knowledge of God that we know He forgives us immediately and instantly and fully and completely so that we have confidence in coming to Him for forgiveness and we have confidence when we have finished our confession that we can press forward in our relationship with Him. We can remain delighting in Him. We can know that He is with us and has not forsaken us and that He's not going to punish us for a day, a week, a month, because of those offenses by by leaving us. In Exodus chapter 34, the Lord Jehovah is revealing His glory to Moses. We've been here before in our study of God's attributes, but I want you to notice again verses 6 and 7. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And that's what we want to see about God. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. And the Bible's filled with examples of great sinners receiving great forgiveness and great sinners receiving quick forgiveness. And we want to delight ourselves in those and realize this is the God that we worship. When we sin, and you will, and you have, and you will yet, He easily and quickly forgives us, and we should take advantage of that so we can continue to walk with Him and delight in Him. If you come over to Numbers chapter 14, Moses is going to remind the Lord of this very sentence and clause that I just read to you when he is appealing to the Lord to forgive Israel. Numbers chapter 14, beginning at verse 17. And now I beseech thee, let the power of my Lord be great, according as thou hast spoken. And now he's going to quote 
from Exodus 33 saying, The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Notice Moses, years later, quotes the Lord himself from Exodus 33 to appeal to him to forgive Israel for their wickedness in not taking the land of Canaan. And that's why we're studying the attributes of God, so that you will remember how forgiving He is, and when you're guilty of sin, you'll go to Him, believing confidently that He'll quickly and easily and fully forgive you. Not on any merit of yours, but on the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ and His faithfulness and justice in applying Christ's merits to us. A lot could be said about our legal forgiveness, but we want to talk about that practical forgiveness that we have. We're not looking directly at the cross where our standing in heaven was settled forever, when our names were washed in the blood of the Lamb, and we were forever freed from sin from a legal standpoint. We are talking about that daily walk that we have where the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin, and we have daily fellowship with God. We want to look at that particular aspect of it. There's more than one phase to God's forgiveness of sin. There's a legal phase, but there is a practical phase. And the practical phase is dependent upon our confessing of our sins. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just. Well, the legal part was done by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. But it's this other practical daily forgiveness of sins that we need in order to continue walking with Him. Now, if I was to say to you, what is the best passage in the Bible that tells us that God's attribute of forgiving is far better than anyone you've ever met, do you know where you'd go? We want to go to Isaiah 55, and we've been here before, but I want you to to slow down as we look at these passages and apply them to the attributes of God, and realize the confidence that we ought to have in walking with and delighting in this infinite being who has such great forgiveness. There, There isn't a reason to fear except your stubbornness and not confessing your sins. That's what you ought to fear. But there should be no fear of God not forgiving you. There should be no fear of God making it hard on you before He forgives you. That's what it's like with other men and women, but not with God. Isaiah 55, verse 6. Seek ye the Lord. And that is what we're preaching this for. That we would seek the Lord and walk with Him more closely. Seek ye the Lord while He may be found. Call ye upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. What a wonderful statement. You are wicked. You have been wicked. You will be wicked. You will sin. You will turn away from God. But he calls on you to return. He calls on you to seek him while he can be found. He calls on you to call on him while he is near, because he will abundantly pardon you and he will have mercy. This is what we want to know about our God. So that when we sin, and it's not a matter of if we sin, it's a matter of when we sin, we know that we can just go to him and he will forgive us. Now in verse 8 we have four, and here is an explanation for God's abundant pardon toward the wicked and unrighteous men. Four My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And by its proximity here, we understand what this difference between God's ways and thoughts and our ways and thoughts is. It's His mercy and His ability and desire to abundantly pardon. And I have preached this before. We want to understand that this is not God's omniscience. This is not God's intelligence. This is not God's wisdom described in verses 8 and 9. It is His forgiveness. Everyone else you deal with, if you continually 
offended them and sinned against them the same way, each time you do it, they're going to show you less mercy. And it's going to be harder and harder for them to pardon you at all. They're going to say, if you were sincere, you wouldn't do it again. But not with the Lord. And not is His forgiveness just a little bit better than ours. His forgiveness is infinitely better than ours. As high as the heaven is above the earth. What is that distance? It's infinite. It's incomprehensible. It's trying to make a point to you and to me that if we want to know this God and delight in Him, we are not going to let our sins separate us from Him. Because once we've confessed them, they're no longer separating Him from us. And so we shouldn't let them bother us because they're no longer bothering Him. Once we've confessed our sins and admitted that we have perverted that which was right and it profited us not, and we've identified our sins and come clean before Him, we've done all He asks of us. If included in that was our reformation of life and that we've turned away from that activity. He forgives. He is forgiving. And He's forgiving in a great degree. And we want to delight in that. This is one of the most fabulous passages in the Bible about God being different from you and me. Right. You know, we quickly learn which people, if we offend, are going to take the longest to get over it. They are the most wicked. The ones that are the most like God want to forgive just like God forgives. And so they become very forgiving. And they get excited when they have an opportunity just to blow an offense off. Because it's the glory of a man to pass over a transgression. And it's God's glory to pass over our transgressions and to abundantly pardon us. The context which I read to you, which you can see clearly, is returning to the Lord after you've sinned. You know, when you leave another person... They're going to punish you, possibly, when you try to return, but not the Lord. But doesn't the Lord chasten us? Yes, that is in a different category of chastening you for your profit, so you will not continue in that course of action. But as far as that sin, He forgives you right then. Did God forgive David his heinous sins right then or not? Yes. He forgave him right then. Did David still have some chastening in his life? Yes. But during that chastening in his life, did David have one of the closest relationships with God that's ever been had by a man? Yes. Can God accomplish both at the same time? Yes. David led the worship and praise of God in Israel, and yet he had trouble from his sons, which was exactly what God had promised would be part of his chastening. Mm -hmm. But he was forgiven immediately, and it's one of the... Sugar texts of the Bible for those that sin and want to find comfort in God's forgiveness. Look at Micah chapter 7, and we've been here before as well, but we are looking at these verses because I want them embedded in your minds to always trust the Lord. Micah chapter 7 about our God and His forgiveness. Micah chapter 7 and verse 18. The last couple verses of the book of Micah. Micah 7.18 Who is a God like unto thee? And that's what we're studying. The attributes of God. There is no God like Jehovah. And so when it asks the question, Who is a God like unto thee? What subject is under consideration immediately? That pardoneth iniquity. It's His forgiveness that makes Him unbelievably different from other God, the, imagination, the imagined gods of men, and from men themselves. Who is a God like unto thee, that pardoneth iniquity, and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. Amen. We will preach the whole counsel of God, that he is the great and dreadful God of the Bible, but I want you to know he delights in mercy. And I'm going to be sharing some verses with you today, that he has consternation in his soul when he has to chasten and punish his own people. There's no confusion there. It's terminology for us to understand the yearning of his bowels for us even while he has to chasten us because he delights in mercy. As this text describes. He will turn again. 
He will have compassion upon us. Do you know what is being said? They are presently under the chastening judgment of God, and yet he's being described as one that pardons iniquity because he doesn't retain his anger forever. You say, well, 70 years is a long time. 70 years is not very long for 700 years of willful rebellion. Right. Do you understand that right here in these two verses we have God chastening in judgment and yet loving pardon and delighting in mercy, which means He can only do it for a period of time. And then He, he, pulls, it, he pulls back. And he turns again. He'll have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. This was a long-standing purpose of God to punish Israel for hundreds of years of sinning. But those who confessed their sins, they were forgiven immediately. And the nation at large, varying degrees of confession of their sins, were forgiven anyway at the end of 70 years and put back in the land of Israel, out of Babylon, because God turned and had compassion upon them. Look at Matthew 18. And it's a parable that I, I'm not, I can't read the whole thing to you, but you should know it. Matthew chapter 18, where the Lord Jesus explains to Peter why he should be willing to forgive his brother more than seven times. This is, this is exactly how we come to understand Isaiah 55, 6 through 9. Peter was one of the apostles. He was the first pope, some would tell us. Of course, we all know better than hear my voice that he was no pope at all. There's no evidence that he even visited Rome since the apostle Paul was the apostle for the Roman saints. He wrote them the epistle and he is the one that traveled to Rome. The last time we read about Peter, he's in the city of Babylon, which is many hundreds of miles away from Rome. But Peter, in hearing about forgiveness and how he ought to forgive, comes to the Lord in verse 21 and says, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. I never said anything like seven. Peter, that's your idea of forgiveness. Mine would be seventy times that. Now, the Lord's playing around with the number seven and seventy, but seventy times seven is four hundred and ninety, which is seventy times greater than seven. And Peter thought he was going quite a distance to say, till seven? And where did all, what does all that mean? The Lord has a concept of forgiveness far greater than ours. And when you go to the Lord and confess your sins and doubt His forgiveness, you are discrediting the God of the Bible. You are discrediting the Scriptures of the God of the Bible. Believe what we're looking at right now. Run to Him. Confess your sins. Stand up forgiven. Jesus explains, beginning in verse 23, that the kingdom of heaven is like to a certain king which would take account of his servants. And there was a servant that owed him 10,000 talents. That's an enormous amount of money. And the king freely forgave him because he had nothing to pay. Then that servant that had been forgiven so much went out and found a fellow servant that owed him just 100 pence. Let's call it 100 pennies versus billions of dollars. 10,000 talents versus a 100 pence. And the fellow servant goes out and, f- the, the, the forgiven servant goes out and finds his fellow servant and takes him by the throat. And you know, there's people like that. Somebody offends them and they respond violently. They're no different than the kid in Connecticut. God sees no difference at all between unjustified anger And it's unjustified when somebody offends you and committing murder because murder is accomplished by anger that starts in the heart that's unjustified. Took him by the throat and said, pay now. A hundred pence. And so the king heard about this and his Lord was wroth in verse 34 and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. 
Now this lesson is for us to learn how to forgive others so that God will forgive us because that's what verse 35 teaches. I want to be the most forgiving person possible. I want you to be the most forgiving person possible so that in our walk with God, He is forgiving of us because of the verses like this. So, when someone does something wrong, I want to be able to just blow it off and forgive them. And you know, the ones closest to us, our spouses, our children, the ones closest to us are typically the ones we don't show the same mercy and forgiveness to that we do others. We want to work at that. This shows the great difference between God's forgiveness and ours. We worry about a hundred pence and God's blowing off 10,000 talents because of His great forgiveness and His great mercy through Jesus Christ. You know, the gospel is a certain message that Jesus came for sinners, as our brother Matthew taught you last Lord's Day. The Bible's full of expressions of God telling us that our sins do not interrupt our relationship once they've been forgiven. Look at Psalm 85 and verse 2. There's numerous passages. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Thou hast covered all their sin. He's covered it. And he's covered how much of it? All of it. Selah. So no matter how bad your past, uh, if we have a Manasseh or a Mary among us today, as John Kent would say in a number of his songs, or a sinner worse than them, he forgives. Manasseh was the worst king Judah ever had. And yet he humbled himself greatly, and God forgave him and restored him to the throne of Judah. Unbelievable mercy. But it's believable if you believe Isaiah 55, 6 through 9. Look at Psalm 103, and you know these words well. They've been expressed to you a couple of different times over the last few months by our young men bringing us psalms. Verse 8 in Psalm 103, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. Look at these repetitions. He will not always chide. Neither will he keep his anger forever. He gets over it in a hurry. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. He knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are dust. Look at all the forgiveness of our God in those verses for us to live and walk with Him. Thank you, Lord. So much more. Look at Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18. Isaiah 1, 18. The Bible is filled with expressions like this. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And wool is white, very white, once it's washed. And there are so many more. Forgiveness allows us unholy sinners to come into the presence of a holy God and be accepted there. You know, we know that relationships can be dulled, can be interrupted or ruined by offenses. What does the Bible say? A brother offended is harder to be won Then a walled city. Is God like that? No. 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 And that's a brother. That's disgusting. That's the ordinary rule. We don't want to be like that. We want to be much better than that verse. Since God is holy and we're not, we will offend Him quite frequently with sins large and small. Because we're His children with His Spirit, His Word, and a conscience, we know guilt and shame when we've offended Him. We know that we've been wrong. And that guilt and shame separates us from Him. But once we confess it, that guilt and shame should wash away in the faith that we have in the forgiveness of the God that the Bible describes. Once we confess it, it should wash away so that that guilt and shame and punishment is taken away, and fellowship is restored. Fellowship when we're delighting in Him. Because those sins are out of the way. 
There's no Cold War per se with God. Cold War is the ending of open hostilities, but there's still enmity between two parties. You know, it was called the Cold War in the 50s and the 60s because there wasn't open hostilities between the Soviet Union and the United States, but there was a lot of enmity between the two nations. They hated each other and were constantly threatening each other. But once we confess our sins, while you might be used to giving Cold War to others, or you might be used to receiving Cold War from others, there is no such thing with God. He embraces us again. And so we want to know that about Him, that we can pray and confess our sins and rise up and believe that we are forgiven. Our offenses can dull affection and intimacy with others. You know, though they say, I forgive you, we know that the relationship isn't quite the same again for a while. It is not that way with the Lord. And we want to love that fact. Job surely wasn't perfect. But when Job humbled himself in Job 42, the Lord forgave him. It wasn't quite so easy on his three friends. But the Lord forgave Job and gave him back double all that he had in the first place. How's that for forgiveness? And yet when you look at what Job did in those chapters, Elihu warned him correctly, if you don't stop talking the way you're talking, God's going to cut you off. Because he was getting very self-righteous, but God knew what strain he had also put Job under, that it was exceptional. There's a merciful God that is plenteous in mercy, and when he puts you under a larger-than-normal burden, he'll also show you a larger-than-normal amount of grace and mercy. David had 70,000 men were killed because David numbered Israel, but God knew that he had turned David over to Satan for the numbering of Israel because he had a problem with Israel. He didn't have a problem with David. He just used it as an event in David's life. And he was merciful. You'll never find that one brought up again about David. You'll find Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite brought up again about David because he was under no duress for those sins. Look at Psalm 130. Psalm 130. Oh, there's no eggshells with the God of heaven. Once you've confessed your sins, you do not have to walk on eggshells. You know, there are people that when you offend them, you might have to walk on eggshells for a while. They may not have forgiven you yet. If you've confessed your sins to them, they may not have forgiven you yet. Or they may say that they've forgiven you, and you're still needing to walk on eggshells because you can tell it's just not the same. Not with the Lord. Not with the Lord. Psalm 130, verse 3. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? If you think, once you get up from confessing your sins, that God is still marking iniquities against you, it's, it's curtains for you anyway, so why even go through the thought process? But that isn't the case. Verse 4, there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. Most people cannot understand that fourth verse, because they think that forgiveness and fear are opposites. But the fear that is described here is the reverent worship of God. The loving service to God. It's not terror. It's not running and hiding from God. It's being, it's knowing that you're fully accepted to go and worship Him again. There is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. This is a fear that flows from forgiveness. It's not the opposite of forgiveness. It's the consequence of forgiveness. It is the consolation and encouragement that God is at peace with you so you can restore your fellowship and relationship and worship and praise and thanksgiving to Him knowing that they are all accepted in His sight. What a wonderful text and it's written in such a way to cause most people to miss it. And I love the God of heaven who writes the Bible in such a way. If God were to mark iniquities, who of us could stand? It's over for us. But... He doesn't mark iniquities against His children and hold them there. He forgives. But there is forgiveness with thee in contradistinction to what was said in verse 3, that thou mayest be feared. And that is my purpose for preaching this attribute, that God may be feared in your life. Because being of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord means that you know it is not terror. It is not paranoia of the Lord. 
The fear of the Lord is the reverent worship and delight and love of Him. And that is restored when we confess our sins because He forgives us. And because of that forgiveness, we have that relationship restored of a positive nature. Not the terror that caused Adam and Eve to hide in the trees of the garden because of the guilt and shame of their rebellion. But the warmth that would cause David to rise up after the death of his little baby by Bathsheba and go into the temple and worship. And so let us have that by understanding the Lord. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 12, since I've mentioned David twice, at least. 2 Samuel 12, and the one verse that we want, and we never want to forget. This is, this is a man after God's own heart. This is the king of Israel. This is a man that God blessed with a whole harem of wives. And he would have given him more if that was a real necessity in his life. But here's what happened when Nathan the prophet told David that his sin of murder and adultery against Uriah and Bathsheba had greatly offended the God of Israel. And the illustration that Nathan the prophet gave David, David responded ferociously by saying a man who had taken a lamb should be killed and the lamb restored fourfold. Now David had just hung himself out to dry. And if Nathan were to say, that sounds like a good judgment, thou art the man. Except it's not a lamb, it's a man's wife, and it's a man's life. David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. How long of a prayer of confession is that? Now Psalm 51 is the cross-reference for this sentence of confession by giving you more details of what was in David's heart that he stated later. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. You said that another farmer should die because he took a lamb. I say, thou shalt not die. Though he had committed two capital crimes, and they were aggravated capital crimes. Is there a God in heaven that's forgiving? If you ever hear someone say, well, I've sinned too much for the Lord to forgive me, they don't know the God of the Bible, and it's why I'm preaching to you to be able to share a word with him that is of a heavy heart and lift him up in the Lord because of the word of God. Look at that. David said the man should die, but God did not apply David's own judgment against himself, though David's sin was so much greater than the man's. He said, thou shalt not die, thou art forgiven. Thank you, Lord, for such things. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. How do we confess? I have sinned against the Lord. 2 Samuel 12, 13. I have sinned. What does that mean? I am wrong and God is right. God's laws are holy and pure, and I perverted that which was right. I have sinned against the Lord. There was a thief that hung on a cross beside the Lord Jesus Christ and had cursed him earlier that afternoon. What was his prayer of confession? Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Do you think you can eke out those words? Do you have enough humility and enough trust and faith in God that you can get those words out? Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. What an answer. This is the forgiveness of God in our personal, practical relationships with Him. You can go to God right now without any gift, without any improvement. For He provided it all through Jesus Christ. It is His faithfulness and His justice that forgives. It is part of His nature. He delights in forgiving us because He delights in mercy. It's His desire to abundantly pardon because He's plenteous in mercy. We sing a song, if you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Don't wait until you're better. That is, that is such wickedness to think that I will give God some better behavior, then he'll be more apt to forgive me. That is how the rest of us operate. That is not how God operates. Amen. You are saying you can earn the forgiveness of God when you say that. But you cannot earn it. 
It was paid for through the Lord Jesus Christ. Your best efforts are still stained with sin. Just go to Him as you are. Your hesitation implies two errors. You either misunderstand God, and you can't make that claim after today, or you like being His enemy because you're a rebel. If you wait until you're better, just go to Him and confess it. He wants you coming naked and helpless, totally cast upon His mercy, and He'll lift you up and say, Fear not. Thy faith hath saved thee. Thy sins are forgiven. Go in peace. That's our Lord. That's our God. I hope that you know His forgiveness so that you can show it to others. Because it's by showing it to others that you show that you understand you've been forgiven. Jesus would teach in Luke chapter 7 about that great sinner that came in and bathed his feet with her tears and kisses and ointment and wiped them with the hairs of her head. He made a lesson right there that Simon the Pharisee did not love him as much as that woman because that woman had been forgiven so much. Simon didn't think he needed to be forgiven. Simon thought he was much better than that woman. But that was not the case. And so our forgiveness of others should reflect our knowledge of how we've been forgiven and our forgiveness of others is the measure by which God will use in forgiving us. And so we ought to look for opportunities to forgive others. Look at Second Chronicles chapter 16 and let's move to another attribute. Second Chronicles chapter 16 and this is that God is observant. The Lord Jehovah sees and he hears and he knows and he's sensitive to his children and their individual needs. I want you to know that about our God. I am not speaking of his omniscience in the sense that he knows everything. I am speaking of his tender mercies of noticing the situations that we are in and being moved by them. And we're going to speak more about the being moved by them under vulnerability in the second assembly. In Second Chronicles 16 and verse 9, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to make sure that He is omniscient of all things. No, I am not dealing with His omniscience. I am dealing with something better than omniscience. I'm dealing with Him observing what's going on in your life and wanting to extend Himself to help you. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. What a wonderful promise. I know that some of you love this promise very much. And I'm glad that you do. And I love it with you. But the eyes of the Lord are running to and fro. And they can run fast. And they can see everything. But they are sent out there, not for everyone, not for puppies and ponies, so that he can be omniscient for those that fear him and whose hearts are perfect toward him because he is going to exercise himself on their behalf. He's going to reach out his right hand for them because those eyes are observant of all that we do. This is not related to prayer. This comes before prayer. This comes without prayer. In, the, in a particular circumstance. Now without prayer for long, you're at a fault before God for ceasing in your praying. And that isn't my point right now. My point is that God is always observant of His children, and if we're going to relate to Him, we ought to always remember that. You should never feel forsaken. He still observes your life. He still observes your difficulties. He knows them better than you know them. He knows your circumstances in detail you can't even comprehend. You know, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, Proverbs 15.3 tells us, beholding the evil and the good. You know, there's, there's a ditch that we fall into that when we read a verse like that, which is Proverbs 15.3, we automatically stop with the words, the evil. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil. And so we get terror out of a verse like that when we ought to get comfort and encouragement out of a verse like that because He beholds the good as well. And those whose hearts are perfect toward Him, He's there on their behalf with great strength and blessing. Look at Acts chapter 7 and the 34th verse. 
Acts chapter 7. There was a nation, the nation of Israel, that had gone down into Egypt, 75 souls. There was a total of 75 souls, including Joseph and his sons, that went down into Egypt. And then that Pharaoh died that had befriended them, and things got terrible. But I want you to notice, this is God speaking to Moses at the burning bush. You can tell in verse 33 that he's at the burning bush, for God has told him to put his shoes off his feet, for where he was standing was holy ground. Verse 34, I have seen. There should be so much comfort in those words. I have seen. I've made this point before. You know, if you're, if you're a wife at home and you're doing one of those thankless tasks, and I hope that with the men of this church, no task is thankless. But let's go ahead with that thankless task, whether it be laundry or dishes. Or, or anything like that that you're doing and you think no one sees, I'll tell you someone who sees. I have seen. And if anyone ever hurts you, I have seen. Does God see the tears of women when they pray that don't come out their eyes? He sees them all. He has all their tears in a bottle. He is incredibly observant. I have seen. And when God sees, He is going to do something about it. Because He cares for His people. I have seen, I have seen the affliction of my people which is in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and am come down to deliver them. This is God being observant. And now come, I will send thee into Egypt. This is so comforting. You will have times in your life where you think no one knows the pain of my soul. No one knows my discouragement. And do you know what? You are right. No one else like you knows. I wrote you that on Friday from Proverbs 14 and verse 10. No one else can know the bitterness of your soul and no one else can intermeddle with your joy. Okay, you're unique. You just have bitterness at depths we cannot figure out because we're just so cold and insensitive towards you. We just can't relate to you, but I'm telling you about someone that does. So in, contra- in contrast to Proverbs 14.10, delight in Acts 7.34, 2 Corinthians 16.9, Proverbs 15.3, and just about any other place you want to turn to in the Bible. He sees, he hears, he knows. He's observant. Thank you, Lord. I have seen. I have seen. Do you like it being repeated in Acts 7.34? See, we believe every word of our King James Bible. That wasn't a copyist who forgot that he had just written the words, I have seen, and therefore wrote them again. This is the Holy Spirit wanting you to get the message. Look at Genesis 16. Genesis 16. I wonder how many in this assembly know what event and what person I'm going after in Genesis 16. Was it a he or a she? Was she an Israelite or an Egyptian? Was she a free woman or a bondwoman? Was she employed or unemployed? Did she have a house or was she homeless? Was she in good health or pregnant? You say they can be both. Well, forgive my comparison. Was she pregnant? Yes. She'd been fired. She's out in the wilderness. This is our God. And she got to meet Him up close and personal. Just like any of you, if you will have faith and believe and cry out to Him. He sees and He hears. And even when you don't cry out, He's right there. Is, am I a God afar off? He asked that question. I need the answer. Am I a God afar off? No. He is a very present help in time of trouble. Amen. Very present. Genesis 16. Poor Hagar. She's been fired by her mistress Sarah. 
thrown out of Abraham's house. And the angel of the Lord, in verse 7, finds her by a fountain of water in the wilderness. And he begins a conversation with her and asks, What's wrong? What are you doing out here? Tells her to go back. Tells her that God's going to multiply that boy that's inside her exceedingly. He'll not be able to be numbered for multitude. Explains more about him. Tells what name he's going to be called in verse 11. Because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. She was afflicted. The Lord heard what Sarah said to her. The Lord heard her cries of grief. The Lord heard her moanings. Whether they were audible or not, the Lord heard. This is the God that we relate to. This is the God we walk with. This is the God when you're driving your car, when you're lying in your bed. He sees, He hears. He hears the groanings of your heart. And when the groanings are not sufficiently eloquent for Him, the Holy Spirit assists them right into the presence of God. Just keep groaning. Don't give up your groaning. Thank you, Lord. Verse 13, And she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou, God, seest me. For she said, Have I also here looked after him that seeth me? What have I done out here in the middle of the wilderness to have Abraham's God come and see me? Wherefore the well was called Beer Lahoy Roy. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. Thou, God, seest me is Hagar's name for God. She had every disadvantage, but God was there. God was observant. There is no disadvantage in your life like hers. She was That, that woman was in trouble. And yet the Lord was there with her and gave her great and precious promises about her son. Laban tried to take advantage of Jacob, but the Lord said, I have seen what your father-in-law has done to you, Now look at the cattle and see that it's the ring straked doing all the mating. I will bless you because I've seen. That's Genesis 31 and verse 12. I've already mentioned the tears in a bottle. Do you know when you wander through life and you're not sure where you're going and you're kind of lost and you're confused and you don't know what the next step is? Those are your wanderings. Do you know that they're all written in God's book? Same verse. Psalm 56 and verse 8. Your tears are in his bottle. Your wanderings are written in his book. He telleth them all. Do you know what it means in the Bible when he telleth them all? He counts them all. He has every single one of them. He hasn't lost one. This is our God. Oh, Lord, my God, how great thou art. Great in his forgiveness. Great in his observance of our lives. Was there a little widow woman who thought she could sneak into the temple? And drop her two, what was that coin called? Mites. A mite. I thought that was like a bed bug. A mite. Very small. Two little coins. Tinkle, tinkle. As they went into the treasury. In Luke 21. But was she seen? That little woman... That little woman who had no desire for public praise, who had no desire to be seen by anyone, who loved God in the secrecy of her heart and went to give her two mites to the Lord, all the living that she had. What a lover of the Lord. Is she going to be observed? She has been read about for 2,000 years. The church knows far more about her than it does you in a degree that can't be estimated. The whole church has read about her for 2,000 years because the Lord saw. When you serve, when you give, when you forgive, when you do those things the Lord has asked of us, there is one that observes and sees every single one, and he is not unrighteous to forget that labor of love. Every conversation you have with a brother, every word of exhortation, every little text message, every little email that you send, every effort that you make toward another person that's pleasing in his sight, he sees it. He hears it. He knows it. And you should take confidence in that. When something happens to God's children, to God's elect, and they are no longer able to have feelings 
or words like Abel, like Naboth, and like others, then their blood cries out to him and he hears that. Do you understand how observant he is? God came down and addressed Cain and said, Where is your brother? Am I my brother's keeper? His blood is crying out to me from the ground. Naboth and his sons were killed for Naboth's vineyard by Jezebel so that she could give Naboth's vineyard to Ahab, who wasn't happy with his royal property. But Naboth's blood cried out to the Lord. And in the plat of ground where that blood cried out, there was Nabal's blood. There was, there was Ahab's blood spilt. This is the observance of God. He hasn't lost one of his martyrs. He remembers every single one of them, and he will have vengeance for every one of them. Hezekiah cried at the news that he had a fatal disease, but it said God saw his tears and heard his prayer. And how long did he have to cry? A few seconds. And Isaiah was turned around to go back in and tell him that he had 15 more years on his life. The Bible says we do not need to use the vain repetitions of the heathen when we pray because God has knowledge of what we have need of before we pray. Matthew 6, 7 and 8. That is observant. He already knows about... Can you, can you rejoice in that? Can you take comfort in that? When you go to prayer, you're not informing the Lord. He's just waiting for you to admit that you could use some help. He already knows that you have need of certain things. He just wants you to show the humility and the source of the strength that you need by coming to Him in prayer. So He's just waiting. It's not that you have to utter a great clamor to get His attention. He already knows because He's so observant. He considers you the apple of His eye, and He's not going to lose you. He's going to observe everything about you. Do you know how careful we are with the pupils of our eyes? The apple of your eye is not an apple. It's your pupil. And do you know how quickly your eyelids will move to protect your pupil? A bright light in your eyes will move your pupil and your eyelids instantly to close those eyes off from that possible danger. And there's the Lord protecting us the same way, and that's an expression he uses in the Word of God. He is forgiving and he is observant. How much confidence do you have in your praying? Now we heard this morning from Psalm 116 and verse 1, I love the Lord because he hath heard. Why does he hear? How does he hear me, a sinner? Because he's forgiving. What about when I don't know how to put it into words? What about when I feel totally forsaken and I can't even lift my voice to pray? He sees everything going on in your life. This is the God that the Bible describes. This is our God. This is our Father. When we come back after our break, we'll look at the fact that not only does he see and hear and know, he is vulnerable to us. And then when he responds, he is generous. He is extravagant. He is liberal in what he pours out on us. And let us rejoice today in the God that we serve, our Father in heaven, who has adopted us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.